Previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I love about Inception is that, and I'm going to be British for a second, it really puts paid to the cliche that you should never end your story with the line, and it was all a dream. <laughs> or end with frustrating ambiguity, because it ends with the most perfect, painful, exquisite ambiguity that you're like, oh, oh, is it? Oh, God, we just, if we'd had one more frame, you feel like you would have been able to tell right. whether or not it was all a dream. Yeah, whether yeah. Whether he was home safe. Yeah, I feel like people get frustrated by ambiguity because they think the narrative has promised them an answer. And so they're watching for an answer. Yeah, I think the other reason people get annoyed with ambiguity is because it covers two quite different things. One is mystery and the other is confusion. And mystery is kind of like, the core of keeping making stories exciting whereas uh confusion is the core of my interest waning well i guess it depends on where the confusion is and where the mystery is like what kind of confusion is bothersome right because a story could have a character that is confused and so the state of the movie is confused right but if it's confusing as to whether what becomes frustrating is if you think the story intends you to know something and you don't know it or if you need to know something and the story's uh reluctant to tell you just you know basic stuff like oh wait who's that person and and where are they and why are they having that conversation and yeah i think like one of the things nolan does really well is that uh whatever you think happens at the end you were never confused mm -hmm. as you would put it about what was real for the character's throughout the movie even maybe you were never really confused about what was real because the movie from the beginning the whole point is these are real people going into other people's dreams that are populated by projections of subconscious so it was all always a dream right exactly by by the definitions used in the movie every layer continues to be real which is why there feels like there doesn't need to be an answer in the movie to the last question because the answer from the movie's point of view is well yes yeah right. <laughs> if your mystery cannot be answered by yes then maybe you should think about it some <laughs> i imagine though though we have discussed why we both really love the ending of inception for some people it pisses them off because they just want to know i think that comes from because there's definitely a part of me that just wants to know but also just wants him because you want you want that loop to close in your mind. You want to be able to almost like check it off. And without checking that off, it sits and whirs in my brain. And I feel like he does that deliberately. Like Nolan deliberately posits that question out there for you to ponder on. And the people who find it frustrating maybe don't want to be thinking about it for hours or days afterwards. They don't enjoy that turning it over, but what if this, but what if this? Either frustrating to them because it takes up brain cycles or frustrating to them because they feel like they can't let go of it, you know? that It's almost like uh, a scab that won't heal. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the, the cleverest thing that, that Nolan puts in the movie because Cobb, the main character is haunted by his guilt related to his wife. And he explains to someone at one point that the way that Inception works best, the way that you can get someone to have an idea and hold on to it, is for it to not be negative, for it to not be painful, but for it to be a reconciliation, for it to be, as you were putting it, a closing of the loop, mm -hmm. a finishing, cathartic. a thing that happens that, yes, is cathartic, so you don't have to think about it anymore. And what Nolan does 
is kind of give you both. Mm-hmm. He allows a sense of reconciliation to be threatened by a wobble where you're not really sure if it's uh, really reconciliatory. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about how the movie is trying, is aiming Cobb and us towards that thing of, of reconciliation while at the same time uh, questioning it all of the time because it's like they're trying to instill in somebody uh, an illusion of reconciliation, which is what a lot of movies do. And as you were saying, a lot of people, it's what they want from stories. They want the feeling of reconciliation. Resolution is actually the word that you learn in writing class. Yeah. (laughs) This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week, well, our pick really for this week is Will Harris's Mixed Race Superman, published by Peninsula Press this year, 2018. Uh, It is not a short story. It is an essay of becoming almost a kind of, you could call it a Bildungsroman, or however that word is pronounced. Very nice German word that I means coming of age. I've literally never heard anybody say it out loud. I've only just You've it. heard it from John Green in the Crash Courses. Oh, maybe. You've definitely. Bildungsroman Bildungs <laughs> uh, is a coming of age of an idea of oneself, of the very wondrous idea of being any one thing at all, told through a wrestling with two very different incarnations of mixed-race Superman, Barack Obama and Keanu Reeves. And that story, that wrestling, is set against a delightful and edifying breadth of cultural touchstones. We encounter here Nietzsche, Nazis, Greek history, Buddhist philosophy, and Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, among many others. Uh, I discovered it in the bookshop in the basement of the Photographer's Gallery in Soho near Oxford Circus, which is really only interesting because it is rare these days that I discover an essay in book form in a bookshop and think, you know what? I should get this. But something about the title spoke to me. It caught my interest. And then I opened it and read two things, the epigraph and the first few sentences. Here's the epigraph. This body will take some getting used to. It feels unreal to me. Alien, spoken by the character Klaatu, as played by Keanu Reeves in The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, And here's a, a few sentences from the beginning. I used to say that in the film of my life, Keanu would play the starring role. Most people don't realize he's mixed race. Keanu Reeves' father is Hawaiian Chinese, hence his name, Hawaiian for cool breeze over the mountains. But since he passes as white, that's how people think of him. A high school friend says that if he asked him where he came from or what his roots were, he was anything you wanted him to be. I like to think that. Not quite white and not wanting to constantly explain his roots, he was trying to get his friends to see race differently not as a fixed sign, but as a fluid signifier. Like a cool breeze, he turned his shapelessness into a form of resistance. I love how in this essay, Will has taken these two examples of mixed raceness, Obama and Keanu, and kind of placed them next to each other as as examples of different ways of doing it, different ways of being, different ways of coming to terms with and understanding their identity like that thing about Keanu the kind of the shapelessness of resistance versus uh all the work that Barack Obama has done to kind of look at his parents at his grandparents at his origins at the countries 
where his where he's from in all those different forms and kind of build up his identity block by block so he's very conscious and aware of it and i i love that he's done that as a kind of a a demonstration of the plurality of every kind of identity yeah yeah i love how in in putting those two two examples together just by nature of 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 having them in conversation with each other and having the idea of the Superman as developed by old Friedrich back in the old days, it puts a lot of interesting questions in your mind. Like, Keanu Reeves is a very successful actor. He has not, so far as I know, uh, led any uh, nation states into war or into affordable care. Um, And the Nazis did not take from old Friedrich's discussion of Superman the thing that Will points out, which is that, uh, which which is the idea of the uncertainty as a kind of strength, as the idea of being above yourself. Instead, the Nazis took it as an idea of becoming a very powerful, certain force in the world, which takes me back to what we were talking about with Inception before. People tend to crave certainty Mm. and this essay fights it in so many ways but it also puts it out there puts out the idea of certainty and how useful it is both to will like he's chosen these two stars in the pantheon as a way to think about identity uh and also in the way that we respond to it like we elected barack obama why it wasn't because he went up there and said like keanu would say oh you know I mean, there's smart people and there's dumb people and you happen to be talking to a, to a dumb person. I don't know anything. You know, that's, that's not what we elect president, but it is often what the kind of reconciliation, the resolution that some of us look for in art, which is a, a triumph of uncertainty. Mm. He, he talks about how superheroes get to transcend the moment of confusion, right? After the radiation, after their terrible practice training suit, they they move forward into this other state of being. But he himself, as a mixed race person, has to stay suspended in that in that confusion, in that uncertainty, and in seeing other people's uncertainty in who he is, what he is, where he's from. And I think that the way he's constructed this essay is so Kind of leaves you so powerfully understanding what that means and he doesn't he doesn't go at it by trying to say like oh hey this is a really complex situation for me and uh you know sometimes it's kind of uncomfortable he he does it in such a beautiful stylistic way by layering up ideas and placing them next to each other one example of of kind of how he makes his arguments in this essay is that in one section he wants to convey the kind of fully loaded racist implications um, of of a racial slur thrown at him at school but he doesn't go into what those feelings are specifically he doesn't dig into that incident in detail he lays out the components of it for us to put together ourselves and that is so much more effective than kind of trying to find the right emotional words right he he quotes obama's pain at seeing someone chemically lighten their skin 
Then he talks about his own pain, reading about Dr. Down uh, uh, in his research calling congenital idiots Mongols. And then without ascribing any emotion, any pain whatsoever, he describes being called a Hmong by some bullies at school. And he leaves it up to the reader to sew those incidents together, to infer what it must mean, the, the, the feeling in your stomach when you're forced to experience and interpret that for yourself. One of the reasons why, when you listen to me discuss how much I love this essay, and you asked, should we talk about it on Storyological? I just said yes, because he's doing a lot of things in the essay that we would think of as um, fictional tools to make sure that we identify with his experience in a way that becomes our experience. Now, maybe some people will identify more or less in the amount that they have been uncertainly seen by other people. Uh, I remember talking to you about how the essay made me think about from the time I was a very small boy that I had been referred to as a girl over and over again, uh, which had never occurred to me myself, who generally thinks of myself as a man, as being a mixed state. But you did point out that it means that 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 uncertainty, while it may not be in me, is what is projected onto me by the world. And I had never really investigated that consciously. Through fiction, yes. Uh, but, you know, Will's doing it in this essay, and there's another thing he does that uh, felt like a very smart uh, craft decision. This essay about the kind of superpower of uncertainty, about shapelessness as a form of resistance, has this wonderful structuralist structure it, it bounces back and forth from one idea to another, never spending more than two or three pages with any one particular idea, bouncing from Thomas Carlyle's History of Great Men to Keanu Reeves, the reluctant ass-kicker of John Wick, to the similarities between Obama and Trump. Um, and while bouncing back and forth, there are no chapter titles, there are no chapter markers. Occasionally, there's a blank page or a little scribble of a symbol that indicates this section is different from this section, but for the most part... It is little bubble of idea, little bubble of idea. And that, that does a couple of things. One, it, it creates these intellectual cliffhangers. It creates the feeling of, oh, we've gotten a little bit closer to something. Oh, now we're talking about something else. So now I'm interested in that and we're getting close. Oh, now we've gone back to this other thing. Uh, that powers this, this other wonderful thing that is built into the essay, which is that we're reading it in a way, feeling like Will is going to get to some realization about himself or about the world. And we, we go on and on, invested in him as a character, invested in the ideas that he's grappling with. Yeah, I was very drawn into this, very interested in both his style and content and what he was saying. And it made me feel really engaged in the arguments he was making and the thoughts that he was putting forward in a way that I don't see us really having great conversations about race in the UK. You know, we're not engaged with it in a historical sense, in the kind of empire building and world fucking upness of uh, of our history. And neither are we engaged with it in a current sense of what it means to live in a Britain where we've had waves of immigration over the last century, oftentimes driven by our own economic need. And yet we still 
I still feel, you know, and I think Brexit shows us this, I still feel like people see immigration as a bad thing. You know, if I talk to my mum about Britishness and about uh, the EU, about Brexit, you know, one of her comments was, she's she doesn't want us to lose what it means to be British. And I have a sense that her idea of what it is to be British was kind of forged in this post-Second World War situation where, um, you know, we'd won, whatever that meant for a country, who you know, for the world that had lost millions and millions of lives. Um, but it was, you know, based around this concept of kind of middle-class manners, working for a better community, um, and then sort of tamping down your own needs and desires in favor of what's good for the group, uh, what's good for the country. And I'm like, okay, those are all fine things to want in life. But I look around at how London exists, the kind of financial uh, tech center melting pot that it is today. And I'm like, I've seen barely anybody living out those values. And where it doesn't matter where you're from. And like, it feels so stuck to me, the kind of concept of Britishness and the understanding that we have as race and ethnicity and different cultures that make up that that kind of sense of Britishness. It can be fueled in that in the in that sort of bedrock fear of change that you could think of as a, a fear of your identity, your yourself, right? Your identity changing. And I it really struck me that when he talked about superheroes transcending their confusion of superheroes entering that bright field of self-knowing, that he was kind of alighting while also highlighting the bedrock of most superhero stories, which is a conflicted identity. Spider-Man is also Peter Parker, Batman is also Bruce Wayne, and, and a lot of their stories, if not most of the best versions of those stories are about the conflicts between those identities, about their continual doubt about who is the more real. As Will points out, it is common in a lot of older myths for heroes to be mixed. They are God and human. And in the same way, most of our superheroes are mixed to some extent. They are masked and unmasked. They are Buffy the Vampire Slayer and also Buffy the High School Student. What interests me is when we think about Britishness or we think about uh, Spider-Man, or we think about Batman, all of these ideas of identity as fixed, I feel like superhero stories give us a, a bit of a clue that in order to know themselves as heroes, most of our supermen and women have to wear a mask. Crucially, generally, one of their own design, one of their own choosing, the emblem of the story that they have chosen for themselves. But one of the satisfying things in, I think, superhero stories that will is right about when he talks about them being a bright field of self-knowing, is no matter how much doubt there is in those stories, for the most part, superhero identities don't change. You don't read a story where Bruce Wayne, who has decided to be Batman, who has told himself this story, who has put on this costume, decides at some point, you know what, I would rather be a different superhero now. I will put on a different costume and I will become... Bruce Wayne turning up in cosplay as Spider-Man. Right, right, exactly. He doesn't become Spider-Man. He doesn't become the purple magician or something. He is always Batman. Now, there are stories where he hangs up his cape, but there aren't stories where he becomes an entirely different entity. 
one of the things Will says in this essay is, is he says, we all have two faces, the one you were born with and the one you grow into. And most of us borrow a hero's face because we don't know how to grow into the second type ourselves. Like most of us are unprepared to grapple with the internal and external situations that create us, that, that define our identity through their negative space and through, and through action. And most of us would rather kind of passively just be like, doo, 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 doo. let's see how far I can get without thinking about this too much. And one of the, his other points, you know, which is related to something else he talked about, about the, the energy it takes to work, to define your identity, to define yourself. And then not only when you've done that work for yourself, but to be constantly challenged on it as a, as a person of color or as a mixed race person, you know, where are you from? No, no, where are you really from? Those kind of constant microaggressions. And and the added burden that puts on him, not only to keep responding like that, but his own uncertainty when he's like, well, what does it mean about me if I say my dad grew up in Devon? Is that me trying to placate the person I'm talking to? Is that me erasing part of myself? I, I really enjoyed understanding the depth uh, the depth of where that work goes and how much energy it takes. You could think about your the example you gave of your mom not wanting Britishness to change as a kind of admitting, I don't want to have to do that work. I don't want to have to come up with a new story for myself. I don't mm. want other people to see me differently and I don't want to see the world around me differently because I... I've already done that work once, or I've already grown into that, and I don't want to do it again. Right, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. There is a, there is a answer to a question uh, that is said in Sense8. It is an answer given by a man in Nairobi, a man who has found hope in the courage of Jean-Claude Van Damme. And the question that this person has been asked is about what it means that, that he, a person of Nairobi, has found courage in a white man. Isn't that finding white courage? What is it about white courage that inspires you? That is what the reporter's question is getting at. And what this character does, and what the show does, is it ends up weaving together all of the different characters in Sensate who happen to share an empathic connection. So all of their identities are a little bit mixed. It, it becomes this whirlwind of an answer to the question of who are you? Uh, and this is how the answer to that question ends in Sense8. Who am I? Do you mean where I'm from? What I one day might become? What I do? What I've done? What I dream? Do you mean what you see? What you see or what I've seen? What I fear or what I dream? Do you mean who I love? Do you mean what I've lost? Who am I? I guess who I am is exactly the same as who you are. Not better than, not less than because there is no one who has been or will ever be exactly the same as either you or me. I thought about that speech a lot while I was reading this essay, uh, both because Sensei is by the Wachowskis, uh, who also made The Matrix, of course, which gets discussed a lot in this essay because of its starring Keanu Reeves as a particular kind of superhero, but also because of how Will kept returning to this paradox of self that one is too few and two is too many that we are stuck in between those things. Uh, there is a bit when Will is writing about 
Neo in the Matrix trip to the Oracle, where he says one of my favorite lines. He says, identity like love should be founded on doubt. And as we said at the beginning, we hate doubt and confusion. We want certainty. Thanks for listening, readers. We have not managed to talk about all the stories in the world so far yet. No, in this episode, we didn't even actually talk about a short story, though we did talk about something wonderful. Um, And if you would like to uh, recommend short stories, essays, fiction, non-fiction for us to discuss in the future, you can hit us up on Twitter. You can find us at StoryLogical, which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And if you want to keep up with these stories we have discussed and the stories we are going to be discussing in the future, you can go to tinyletter.com slash storyological to sign up for our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you enjoy, perhaps Stitcher. I've heard of Stitcher. Mm. Um, I've listened to 51 hours of Mark Maron's podcast on stitcher in the last two months is that about 20 episodes no it's about they're mostly about an hour somewhere an hour and a half um and if you have enjoyed this episode we hope you will consider supporting us on patreon Uh, if you support us at three dollars a month you will receive each month a newsletter in which i review everything more or less And for show notes, links to past episodes, including interviews with writers like Carmen Maria Machado or Sam J. Miller or Alyssa Wong, also gifts of an appropriate and generally inappropriate nature. You can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Is that it for banter? Okay. Unless you uh, want to uh, talk about how how Killian Murphy, not attractive in any of the Christopher Nolan movies. It was only when I saw him in Peaky Blinders, <laughs> where he'd shaved his hair into a weird haircut and got a Birmingham accent. Suddenly I was like, oh, yeah. this guy. Yeah, I don't think he's going to do it for you in Dunkirk either, probably, unless you're really into post-traumatic uh, <laughs> soldiers adrift on a boat. He does have a really They're good jumper. They're not in my jumper. top five list of really people I like to hook up with. But that's but uh, positive to, uh, positively, there was somebody in Inception that, that finally, in a Nolan film, jumped out. Right, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Jogo. <laughs> yeah, in his most, in the role where he has to smile least and be apparently the most boring character in the whole thing. I was like, oh, finally. Yeah, now you're attractive.